Hello and welcome to Songs for the Struggling Artist, the blogcast. My name is Emily Rainbow Davis and this is episode 211. And uh, if you were wanting to know the results of the election that I wrote about, uh, that I did the podcast about a couple of episodes ago, we finally have them as of a few days ago, took only a month, <laughs> and uh, A lost, Aravella Simotas lost the election by 300 votes, 300 votes. So now we will have a former DJ as our assembly person. In New York. Woo! Anyway, that, that's happening. Um, unless a Republican cha- challenger comes along, which I don't think is actually possible at this point. Um, I, I was actually worried about that, just like how imminently challengeable this guy is. So um, I, think, I, think, I think he's going to Albany. So, you know, he's going to lay down some sick beats for the people of Albany, I guess. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, it's, uh, it's actually funny that I'm telling you about this on this particular post. Because this one is about favorite sons. And this guy is uh, where he is because of his son status, I feel. Anyway, um, so let me read it to you. It is called Favorite Sons and Unicorns. Over the last few years, I have leaned into making work for young people, both as a theater maker and as a writer. I dove headfirst into theater for youth and then later into middle grade fiction. I went to conferences for both, and found that they shared something I didn't expect. They were both fields that were largely run by women. Women were the decision makers and the middle women. Women dominated, which was very nice to see. There aren't a lot of fields where that's true. But work for young people is, like education, a kind of feminized subset of the greater whole. The rest of theater and the rest of literature are dominated by men. It's a very interesting phenomenon. Even more interesting to me is how this domination does not extend to the artists. There are the odd exceptions, but the artists that these women choose to grace their stages or their publishing houses with are mostly men. If there's a commission to be handed out, I can almost guarantee that it will be handed to a man. And in all probability, he will be a white man. At the several Theater for Youth conferences I attended, I saw many all-male performances and not one single all-female show. The ratios were staggering. I saw male writers hailed as geniuses and male directors applauded for their mastery. I did not see one single woman so honored. I saw artistic director panels without one single woman. Similarly, at the Children's Book Writers Conference, 
Men in artistic positions outnumbered women two to one, while the membership of the organization had women outnumbering men by 10 to one. In both places, I saw men being coddled and catered to. I saw them lionized and adored. I did not see the same for women, ever. There's a quality that reminds me of the stereotypical Italian mother from fiction. The bella mama who adores her sons. She'll do anything for them. She pinches their cheeks and calls them heroes. She treats them like kings. In women's spaces, like work for children, men who go there become the favorite sons. It makes me think of a phenomenon that Deborah Francis White talks about on her podcast, The Guilty Feminist. The podcast is a distinctly woman-y feminist space, and whenever a man shows up, he tends to be very interesting to the audience. Deborah Francis White has lately been inclined to talk about how much credit male feminists get for just showing up. The bar is so low, she'll say. And it is. All a male feminist had to do to get a whole bunch of credit is show up at a feminist event, and he's a hero. She compares it to the applause men will get for caring for their own children. Look at him holding his own baby, people say. What an amazing man. I think this happens in other feminized spaces to varying degrees. Men get handed goodies just because they showed up in a place men don't always go. They get all the privileges associated with maleness and then get an extra layer of laudatory attention for being unusual. But the fact is, men in these spaces are not unusual. They are the norm. They are the norm over and over again. The favorite sons are chosen over and over again. They seem like unicorns to the women who are choosing them, but it is a 98% unicorn world, so unicorns just aren't that special in it. And the horses are just left kind of out wandering around the paddock going, I thought horses belonged here. There are so many in charge. Does it have to be this way? Of course it does not. I know at least one presenter who brings in women's work much more often than her colleagues do. She'll do the occasional unicorn show, but she makes special room for horses. While her colleagues are pinching the cheeks of the latest it boy unicorn, she is giving space to a group of horses to try a new idea. The bar is high for women feminist heroes, and to my mind, she meets it. I'm not saying we should never do another unicorn show. Unicorns are great. But I would like for their bar to be a little bit higher, and I would like for the bar for horses to be a lot lower, because at this point, only the occasional magic horse can get over it, and usually it's because someone's favorite son is riding on her back. And don't think I haven't noticed that most of the favorite sons are white. The majority of the women in charge are white, and they choose their boy geniuses to be as like them as they can. On a rare occasion, there is a son of color, but he is usually treated as a kind of pet project. The white boys are geniuses. The boys of color have so much potential that needs to be cultivated and shaped and pruned. 
In these spaces, men of color can be called inspiring, but they're rarely called brilliant. In some rare moments in these spaces, you'll find a woman of color, but she somehow has to lean into a culturally specific lane. A black woman can make some inroads with Anansi Tales. Agents can sell her show for Black History Month. A book about Chinese lanterns can be sold around Chinese New Year lessons in school, so that means there might be space for a Chinese woman. I mean, I love Anansi Tales and Chinese lanterns as much as the next person, probably more than the next person, but what if our artists of color could just make cool stuff that they felt like making? Like, we could have a South Asian company make a show about trains, or an Iraqi writer could just publish a cute story about a frog. Or maybe, as a temporary remedy, white artists should only be allowed to make culturally specific work for a while. Like, no more cute frog stories for us white folks. It's just Betsy Ross myths, muskets, and tea cozies in our repertory now. See how we like it. We would not like it. In any case, I'm no longer attempting to make any inroads in these spaces. I gave them my best shot, but I didn't see a path toward success. I was no one's favorite daughter there, and there is no such thing, really. The favorite daughter of folktales is the one who does all the chores and sacrifices herself for the good of her loved ones, not one who strides out into the world to make her fortune. I'm keen on striding out into the world to make my fortune the way the boys do in those stories. And one day... I hope to encounter someone who can actually champion me the way boys get championed by their arts mothers and their arts fathers. And I hope all the Bella Mamas of all the feminized spaces find a way to make favorites of more than just the white boys one day. So I was worried this one might like... Uh, offend some people that I know because I'm part of those communities still. You know, I'm Facebook friends with a lot of presenters and agents and people who work in the theater for young people world. Uh, Same goes for uh, maybe less so for um, this writing world. But I was like, oh, I hope this doesn't, you know, upset anyone. I shouldn't have worried because nobody read it. So, <laughs> hey, that's how it, that, yeah, that's, I worry. And then there's no reason to worry. <laughs> um, yeah, because folks in those worlds are not actually like out there trying to seek change. They they say they are, but I, I, I'm skeptical. Um, yeah. Anyway, hopefully they mean it this time, uh, but... I'm not counting on it. Anyway, yeah, so uh, this one did not really um, make a big splash in the blogosphere, but it was also, I think, when this one came out, there was a lot of other stuff going on, so it was not, um, I, don't, I don't think it was a great time for it to appear. Um, yeah, but what song do I have for you? Um, I looked for songs about unicorns, weirdly, not a lot of them. I couldn't find one. Um, I mean, that was worth anything. Uh, So I ended up trying to think of like, okay, so like I'm working with a stereotype here a little bit of this, you know, overly uh, attentive Italian mother. 
Um, and, and I think there are other versions of this particular character that, that lionizes their, their sons. Uh, but Italian is what came to me, probably because I am most familiar with it, that, that stereotype. So I just decided to lean into Italian stereotypes for fun for this one. Um, and I decided to do uh, Cielo la Luna, which is like, if you think of, hey, what's a, an American Italian song that, that, that just epitomizes like stereotypical Italian stuff, you're thinking of this one. Like you, you are. <laughs> you don't know that you're thinking of it. When you hear it, you're going to be like, oh yeah, I know that song. Um, and I went down an incredible rabbit hole with this song because I thought of it because uh, there's a, a bunch of references to mama. So there's a lot of um, mama, 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 you know, like that's a, that's, that's, that's why I thought of it. Um, but it's, I didn't know what the lyrics were because they're in a kind of dialect uh, sort of. I think it's like a cross between Neapolitan and Sicilian, depending on the version. And also it's like an American, Italian, Sicilian. So, I, you know, I learned Italian in Florence and Italy, and it's like an entirely different language. Um, so, yeah, so I didn't know the lyrics, which I found out what some of them are. Um, and I listened to multiple versions of this song which also has multiple titles. So sometimes it's called Che La Luna, sometimes it's called Che La Luna, sometimes it's called Zuma Zuma, sometimes it's called Lazy Mary, sometimes it's called, oh, there's another one in English, but I can't remember what it's called. Uh, it is, yeah. But so this song was written, um, there are versions of it that go back in, into the like 1800s, but the the first one that is recognizable as this song was written in 1927 uh, here in the United States. So it is actually an American song. It's an Italian-American song, but it, it's, you know, grounded here in the United States. And it is part of a whole genre of music that now exists that you can, like, Google mafia playlists and this song will inevitably appear um so like now there's a genre of like mob and mafia music of which this song is the probably prime example which i find fascinating um because also i wonder how italians in italy feel about this particular song there's something very american italian about it um a lot of things Anyway, I find the whole world of it absolutely fascinating. And it led me to this really, like, I got really obsessed with, um, in two of the versions that I listened to, uh, they, there were references to Italian, And I think it's like a joke way to say Italian. But they'll say like, I don't speak Italian or something like that, you know. Um, so Lou Monty's version and Dean Martin's version, they both say Italian. Uh, which I know, I feel like I recognize as like a joke that my grandmother would tell. Like not not that you would tell it, but you know, just like it's a jokey a jokey way to say Italian. Uh, and I'm guessing it's from it's from the Lumonti version because that song was the most popular. Uh, anyway, I I like Googled. I was like, is there a know your meme for like the 1950s? <laughs> there there isn't. Um, 
But if anyone knows how Italian came to be like a joke way to say Italian, please tell me. Uh, so I found that fascinating. And also like this song is, is so often just kind of, uh, an excuse to, to riff. Um, there's a lot of, um, it goes in many, many different directions and the, and the lyrics are almost never the same from version to version. There's a, a sort of theme, but you know, uh, so yeah, so there's that. And also, sorry, I have a lot to say about this song. Um, it's it's kind of disturbing. Like the lyrics of the song are basically, there's a moon in the middle of the sea. Mom, I want to get married. Daughter, who should I give you? Why don't you choose? And then the mother offers up options you know she say well if I give you the shoemaker he'll always have a hammer in his hands and then he's gonna hammer you uh, I, if I give you the farmer he's always gonna have a plow in his hands and then he's gonna plow you uh, which is ooh, ooh, I don't know it's, it's a little weird um, especially the one where I, I, I'll give if I give you the barber He'll always have a razor in his hands and he will razor you, uh, which is horrifying. <laughs> uh, anyway, so that's a whole other ball of wax. And it's also interesting that it's never women who sing this song, aside from the Andrews sisters, and they sang just entirely different lyrics in English, but ha that had nothing to do with any of these lyrics at all. Um, so... I just, I'm, fa I'm fascinated. I find this whole, I feel like I could, I would read a, a book about, about this song and hopefully haven't just spoken a book to you about this song, but it is endlessly fascinating to me. Anyway, so I put together a, a sort of hodgepodge of different versions. Um, uh, there's, um, there's a line that's, uh, Pisha Frita is the most common which to me sounds like fried fish, but I'm not entirely sure that that's what it is because it's usually just listed as nonsense. But to me, to my ear, to my sort of understanding ear, it sounds like fried fish. Um, so some people sing that, some people sing um, some other lines that I can't remember, but I went with Pisha Frita for most of the song and then went for Zuma Zuma at the end, which is the, the Louis Prima version, which is the version I was most familiar with when I started this journey. Um, and I went with, um, I'm not sure whose lyrics these are, but I do do a little chunk of Lou Monty's Lazy Mary in English in the middle because I really enjoy these lyrics. <laughs> they're they're um, ridiculous, of course, but... Um, there's like a couple jokes in there and I enjoy the jokes. I enjoy them. Uh, yeah. So I think that's all, believe it or not, that I have to say about Chela Luna, which you will hear in a moment on ukulele. Meanwhile, if you like the podcast, thank you. Please tell someone. Uh, you can support it on Patreon, patreon.com slash Emily R. Davis or Kofi or PayPal. All those links are in the show notes. Also, uh, five stars and reviews are very helpful as well. So if you feel like doing that, also awesome. Uh, so thank you for listening. 
And without further ado, I give to you Che La Luna. Che la luna mezzo mare, mamma mia, mi maritare. Figlia mia, cute dare, mamma mia, pensaci tu. Si ci dunio lo scaparo, i du va, i du veni, un mate du manu teni. Si ci pigli la fantasia, ti matta dia, figlia mia. Zoom, 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 zoom